Tipling, Jesse James, a man pawning his wife's leg for whiskey, millionaire police officers, a would-be bomber in Nashville, swindles and suicide packs. Welcome to A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee for February the 3rd, 1886. Our first set of articles comes from the Maryville Times, a newspaper from Blount County, which is part of the Eastern Grand Division of Tennessee. The title of this article is A Small Grist, Quarterly Grinding of the Blount County Circuit Court. State versus Jesse James, no pros on cost. Could it be the same Jesse James? No, it's not. The notorious Jesse James died in 1882 from a gunshot wound to the head. State versus William Snyder, larceny, verdict guilty, and one year in state prison. The paper then lists 21 cases against J.C. Tunnell. State versus J.C. Tunnell, tippling, no pros. State versus J.C. Tunnell, tippling, convicted and fined $25, appeal to Supreme Court. State versus J.C. Tunnell, guilty, fined $100 and six months in county jail. And then J.C. Tunnell, no pros. J.C. Tunnell, no pros. J.C. Tunnell, not guilty, fined $25, appeal, not guilty. J.C. Tunnell, seven cases continued. State versus J.C. Tunnell, six cases, no pros. I don't know who J.C. Tunnell was or what all he did, but he had quite a bit of legal trouble going on here in Maryville. Editor Steed has served out his term in jail for his assistance in the abduction of Eliza Armstrong. It is predicted that he will be in the lecture field in a short time. The next article is not about a crime, but it is interesting in an historical perspective, given all that we have just gone through with the presidential secession. This is the presidential secession bill, having been signed by the president, is now a law, and Senator Sherman is no longer in the line of accidental secession. In the case of President Cleveland's death, Mr. Bayard would become president, and failing him, the line would pass down through the cabinet in the order in which they are accustomed to be named. Since the death of John Allen, the, quote, wickedest man in New York, unquote, many attempts have been made to discover his prototype. He has been found in the person of a man named Johnson, also a dweller in Gotham. The other day, he sat down on his wife, took off her cork leg, and went out and pawned it for whiskey. Johnson is certainly entitled to the palm. And white-collar crime is nothing new. Recent operations of swindling pensioned attorneys in Washington who, eager for fees, however obtained, have been sending out circulars stating that soldiers who enlisted prior to December 24, 1863 are entitled to a bounty of $100 each, having caused some losses to brave men or their families. It may properly be stated again, for simple information, that only those who enlisted previous to July 24, 1861 have a right to the bounty, and they are not numerous. On February the 3rd, readers heard from the world's most famous weather prognosticator, the Groundhog. Yesterday was Groundhog Day. The brute, according to tradition, came out to get a little fresh air, and seeing his shadow reflected by the sun, turned on his heel and sought the shadows of his burrow. Had he not seen the shadow, we would have the company of the hog, and beautiful weather would reign supreme for the ensuing six weeks. The remainder of our articles come from the Memphis Appeal. This story is not about a crime in itself, but it does have a connection to a very notorious criminal. 
General David Hunter, United States Army, retired, died suddenly yesterday afternoon at his residence in Washington. He was in his usual good health in the morning and made several visits downtown in the afternoon. On retiring, he complained of pains in his abdomen and had to be assisted to bed. He died in a few minutes. He was a veteran of the Mexican War and also served with distinction in the late war. He was retired in 1866 after being severely wounded in several engagements. He was president of the military court that tried Mrs. Surratt. This next article is just a point of personal privilege. It's about women's suffrage, an area that I'm interested in, especially this year. Women's Suffrage, Washington, February the 2nd. Senator Blair today reported favorably from the Committee on Women's Suffrage a joint resolution to amend the Constitution so as to extend the voting privilege to women. The Cincinnati Law and Order League, Cincinnati, Ohio, February 2nd. The Law and Order League today presented to Governor Foraker, who is in the city, articles of impeachment against the police commissioners for his action under the statute in such cases, charging them with willful misconduct in office by refusing to enforce the laws relating to theatrical performances on Sunday. The refusal was in the form of a note declining to accede to the request of this league to stop Sunday theatricals. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll learn how New York policemen became millionaires. And now, let's continue our exploration of a year of crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee for February the 3rd, 1886. Fixing the Police, How New York Policemen Became Millionaires New York, February the 2nd. Harry Hill, his wife, a barmaid, and a bartender today appeared before the police commissioners of the city and bluntly swore that Hill who has no license to sell liquor in his notorious resort, had been paying since last summer sums of money, from $50 to $100, to Detective Moran, who stated the money must be paid to Captain Murphy and the higher police officials or Hill's place would be raided. Hill says he kicked recently when $500 was demanded in a lump as hush money. Then on Saturday night, a barmaid was arrested, and Hill got tired of what he calls persecution and went before the commissioners and made the above statement. The police commissioners, after hearing te Hill's testimony, determined to try the captain and detectives on the charge and pending the trial, transferred them to the annexed district. This article is titled, A Dynamite Sensation, New York, February the 2nd. A Nashville, Tennessee special dated yesterday to the Times says, a sensation was created here today by the discovery of an attempt to blow up the passenger ferry boat Pearl with dynamite. The Pearl is a small steamer used in conveying people from the west bank of the Cumberland River to East Nashville during the construction of the new Iron Bridge. It is daily patronized by 3,000 persons. Henry Robertson, the fireman, found in a pile of coal from which the furnace is supplied a dynamite cartridge one foot in length with a fuse attached. It is not known at what time the cartridge was placed in the coal or by whom, but it is evident that the intention was to blow up the boat. Had the cartridge been put in the furnace, a tremendous explosion would have occurred, and not only would the boat have been totally wrecked, but many lives would have been lost. It is supposed that someone who had a grudge against some person or persons connected with the boat adopted this method of securing revenge. The cartridge was thrown to the river by an officer of the boat. 
attempt to impeach an Iowa judge, Des Moines, Iowa, February the 2nd. The House proceedings were enlivened last evening by a brisk debate upon the proposed impeachment of Walter T. Hayes, judge of the 7th Judicial District. The movement to impeach is based upon resolutions passed by prohibitionists at Muscatine and which were sent to the House, where a motion was made to appoint a special committee to investigate and prefer charges in regular form if deemed necessary. It was upon the adoption of this resolution that the debate sprung up. The feature of the decision was the terms in which several Republican members notified the leaders of prohibition that they had gone as far as it was good for the state or profitable for the Republican Party and that to now ask them to impeach a judge for the alleged reason that he had not been sufficiently severe in his punishment of the violators of the liquor law was more than they could stand. Thompson of Lynn and cousin of Cedar County defended the reputation of the jurist whose course had been impugned. The whole matter was referred to the Judiciary Committee. The next section is titled General Foreign News, The Liverpool Mutiny. Liverpool, February the 2nd. Thirteen of the lads of the reformatory ship Clarence, who rebelled against their officers yesterday, were arraigned in court this morning and charged with having been guilty of mutiny. The boys alleged as a reason for the demonstration that they had been cruelly treated by the officers of the ship. They were remanded for trial. Three officers were wounded in the fight on board the ship. It is now learned that none of the lads were wounded by the fire of the officers, but a number of them were bruised. Tragedy at Lyon Lyon, February the 2nd. A man named Tony Gonet, becoming enraged at the refusal of a girl to live with him, shot her. He then tried to escape, but was pursued by a crowd. He fired several shots at his pursuers and wounded two firemen, two soldiers, and a civilian. Gonet took refuge in his lodgings where he was arrested after a desperate fight. The girl and five men whom he shot are all severely wounded. And now back to news from the States. Adonis knocked out. New York, February the 2nd. The world this morning says the Dixie family, which consists of Adonis, his wife, and a little boy and girl, occupied a box at the Bijou Theater Sunday night. After the entertainment, Papa sent his wife and children home in a cab and in company with Mr. Digby Bell dropped into the St. James Hotel. A friend took an unaccountable dislike to Mr. Dixie's general presence, and before the actor knew what he was about, he received a couple of knockdown blows. He was about to annihilate his assailant when Mr. Connor interfered and ejected the actor's assailant. One of Mr. Dixie's eyes was slightly discolored. Mr. Digby Bell discreetly withdrew at the beginning of the attack, but returned when the assailant was put outside. Wanted to Die Together, St. Louis, Missouri, February the 2nd. About one o'clock this morning, the St. Clair sisters, Rose, age 24, and Nellie, age 23, both inmates of a house of ill repute, number 524 Spruce Street, attempted suicide by taking the contents of a four-ounce bottle of laudanum. Prior to taking the drug, they sat down in their rooms and each wrote two letters to the other inmates of the house, giving instructions what to do with their remains after death. A timely discovery by one of their companions of the house caused a physician to appear. He applied the usual remedies, and up to a late hour this morning, the girls were still in a critical condition. The two patients are from Hickman, Kentucky. This next story used a word I wasn't familiar with, banyo, which is a brothel. The article is titled, Not Married to Clouds, Interest in the Chicago Banyo, Tragedy Revived, 
the confession of the young woman who claimed to be his wife. Chicago, Illinois, February the 2nd. The Times this morning publishes a long story which revives the tragedy of January 22nd when Charles Clowes killed his mistress and himself and a banyo in this city. At that time, a young woman claiming to be his widow came forward. She said her maiden name was Lillian Kelsey and that the early part of her life had been spent in a small town in Cayuga County, New York, where she had lived with her grandmother and had taught a school. She claimed to have met and married Klaus in New York City. The Times says since the tragedy, rumors have been current that this young woman was never married to Klaus, that she confessed this fact to his mother and agreed to compromise her claim on the estate of the deceased. And further, that for some time previous to her meeting with Klaus, she had been a member of the ballet in a New York theater. With the view of ascertaining the truth or falsity of these rumors, a reporter called on Mr. Thompson Fulton, an uncle of the young man, who said that Klaus had never intimated to him that he was married, that on the contrary, he had denied a report to that effect which had reached his mother. Mr. Fulton then said, I heard nothing more of the wife story until I was summoned a few hours after the tragedy to the side of the dead man where I was surprised to see a girl who claimed to be Klaus' wife. I could do nothing under the circumstances but receive her into my family and treat her with all due respect, for we had no proof that she was not all she claimed. Wednesday, following the day of the funeral, she acknowledged to Mrs. Lunas, Klaus' mother, and myself that she was not what she pretended Klaus' wife. She stated that she had lived with him as his wife in various places, but that she had never been married. There was no truth whatever in the story that she exhibited a marriage certificate shortly after the killing. I have never heard that Klaus introduced the girl as, as his wife or on any occasion acknowledged that he possessed a wife. In relation to the report that we or any of his relatives have offered her a thousand dollars or any other sum to relinquish all claims, I will say that such is not the case. Why should we, when she has declared substantially that she has no claim? We have not seen or heard from her since she made the statement that she was not Klaus' wife. Our relations with her are perfectly friendly. A call was also made at the residence of Miss Kelsey's aunt, where the young lady is at present stopping, but she could not be seen. Her aunt, however, stated that she believed the couple had been married. She admitted that Lillian had been on the stage both in New York and Chicago for a short, short time in small parts, but ceased to appear on account of the objections made by Klaus. Our next article is from Louisville, Kentucky, titled Sensational Encounter. Louisville, Kentucky, February the 2nd. A sensational and perhaps fatal encounter occurred at Lebanon, Kentucky yesterday between Judge R.A. Burton, Deputy Collector of Internal Revenue for the 5th District of Kentucky, and Mr. Samuel Averett, a leading attorney of Lebanon. Both gentlemen are directors in the bank and have not been on good terms for years. At a meeting of the bank directors yesterday, Judge Burton and Mr. Averett questioned each other sharply about a bank matter, and Mr. Averett finally called the judge a liar. That gentleman quickly seized a notary seal and hurled it with great force against the lawyer's head. The latter, who was temporarily stunned, recovered himself in a moment, and rushing upon Judge Burton with an open knife, cut his throat from ear to ear, inflicting a wound which, if not fatal, is necessarily dangerous. Judge Burton was removed to his home in the country, and Mr. Averett, who was also dangerously injured, was taken care of in town. And now, our last article, 
killed his daughter's seducer from Dallas, Texas, February the 2nd. David Kittrell, who was running a passenger and baggage wagon, was shot four times through the head and killed instantly at the Union Depot in the presence of a large number of people by R.N. Hoffman yesterday. Both are well known in Dallas and the tragedy created quite a surprise and sensation. Hoffman charges that Cottrell had seduced his daughter Lilla, aged 18 years, and had refused to marry her. Immediately after the shooting, Hoffman surrendered to the officers and was placed in jail. February 3rd newspapers had quite a variety of different articles about crime. Please join me tomorrow for a year of crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee for February the 4th, 1886.